0: Welcome to Centering Centers, a podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. I'm your host, Laura Becker, a faculty member and faculty fellow with ACERT, our Academic Center for Excellence in Research and Teaching at Hunter College City University of New York. In each episode, I will be interviewing educational developers in a range of contexts as a way to contribute to the community of faculty developers by connecting us to one another and to the essential work we do. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode eight. Today I speak with Dr. Lindsay Dukopoulos, who's the Associate Director of the Educational Development Team at Auburn University. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am very excited to get to speak with my friend and colleague, Lindsay Dukopoulos, who is at Auburn University, um, to find out a little more about her and her background um, in educational development. So welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. Um, so we're just going to jump in and kind of like go back in time to, I know you were, you um, You know, an instructor at the college level for many years before you went into educational development. What what was your disciplinary background? What was um, kind of the pathway you took? How did you discover like faculty development or educational development? Can you go back and walk us through a kind of your path into the work um, that you're doing now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my disciplinary background is creative writing. And I had a particular specialization in poetry and playwriting. I also did some fiction and nonfiction, Very so I was cool. kind of a multi-genre kind of person. Yeah. Um, and so, professionally, all I wanted to do was continue taking writing workshops and stay in programs where I could do that for as long as possible. So that mm-hmm. led me to going to get my PhD in creative writing. Didn't really have the plan to teach at that point, but you know, kind of. Funneled myself into it as I started getting experience teaching comp classes as part of my GTA stipend and responsibilities and things like that.
0: I'm just gonna interrupt you. What kind? What kind of creative writing? What? What area? Like, what were you writing?
1: Uh, Mostly poetry and plays. My most kind of reputable publications are in those two genres. Um, I've had some poems in Tin House, which is a pretty well-known magazine um, I was published in between Cheryl Strayed and Stephen King so that was oh, probably the high point of my poetry that's career. so
0: cool <laughs> celebrity sighting that's yeah great.
1: absolutely and then um, plays my most well-known play is a short play called six dead bodies duct tape to a merry-go-round so it's a <laughs> comedy love story obviously I love that
0: that's a great I have a visual right there on that one. That's great. I have a few people I'd like to duct tape to that. Mary.
1: Absolutely. Um, And for my PhD, it's um, kind of a studio degree. Um, So half of my dissertation is my creative works over the course of my PhD program. Mm -hmm. And the other half was a critical reflective essay about some of the major figures and different kinds of things, but also reflecting on my work. And in doing that reflection, you know, looking back at all the things I've written, you know, I've been writing since I was a little kid, uh, but looking back on what are the themes, what are the things that I see that kind of characterize all of my work in different genres, it's really about communication and how we speak, how we hear, and who listens. So Mm -hmm. that became kind of the unifying theme in all my creative work. And I think it's, um, you know, also the unifying theme in the teaching as well um I know a lot of people when they start teaching they have that dream about you know showing up to class naked or unprepared and things like that yeah my my recurring stress dream ever since I started teaching and even now sometimes is that I show up and I start teaching and I can't get the class to quiet down and listen to me and I feel like there's <laughs> seeking... <such> high school <laughs> in New
0: York City because I lived that for many years
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah no it's a. Uh, it, it definitely has some real, <laughs> 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 some real experiences there that lead to that, um, but that anxiety about putting all this effort into this, you know, kind of learning opportunity and then not getting the students to engage and pay attention. Mm-hmm. And that I think, you know, for me, that was why I wanted to invest in becoming a better teacher. I really wanted to create the perfect lesson where every student learned and was engaged and. I felt rewarded, you know, that, that to me was really um, motivating to create experiences where everybody was sort of engaged and changed for the better.
0: That sounds like a playwright. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well I mean at least some parallels there. Yeah I mean if you think about lesson design as um, creating an experience for the you know that the audience becomes engaged in you're probably most suited as a playwright to crafting lessons than anyone. Really interesting. Um, Okay so you were you were getting interested in in um, focusing on the your teaching side of of your area and then how did what happened then?
1: Yeah, so I started teaching um, right out of grad school here at Auburn University as an instructor in the English department for several years and then moved up to a lecturer position. And then around 2014, 2015, I went to this event that was, um, you know, like a day-long faculty development workshop. I didn't really know what it was but there was this woman there leading this event and she was just so dynamic and engaging and having a great time and all these faculty were paying attention to her <laughs> they were having they were having conversations that I was never hearing happen in my own kind of wing of the the office building where I was and it was you know something that I discovered I was really hungry for conversations mm-hmm. about how do we teach how do we engage students Really troubleshooting, not just the disciplinary kind of perspective and content, which in the past was really what my teaching evaluations and feedback focused on, but rather on mm-hmm. why would I do a think pair share instead of, you know, a written reflection activity and that kind yeah. of thing. So this woman was the leader of our teaching and learning center here, Diane Boyd, who is now um, at leading the teaching and learning center at Furman University. Oh, okay. But at the time she was here and she just, you know, like. I I wanted to know how you got to do that kind of work. So I started just sort of following whatever events the Big EO Center was doing and eventually decided that that was like the the trajectory I really wanted to look for opportunities in. And it Mm -hmm. just happened, you know, luck of the the draw, I guess, that there was an opportunity to be an assistant director here. And so I applied Mm -hmm. and got the job and I've been here as an assistant director. I got promoted to associate director last year um that have been learning and growing ever since so it has been really fun
0: wow so when did you actually start then in the role in the in the um as an educational developer there that was around what time then
1: fall 2016 I started 2016. in our center here
0: okay yeah. so coming so up have, on my yeah you're you you're um not new new but um it's not like you've been doing that for 25 years. So um, interesting, really interesting. Um, What an inspiration um, Diane Boyd sounds like she was um, for you. And the, um, I'm sure the kind of that positive feeling about the faculty development experience, you could just kind of build, continue it, you know? So that's kind of nice as opposed to coming into a place that didn't have Really, that kind of a center or that kind of engagement, um, you know. The as you know, you were there for a couple of years, but then we've had this pandemic now the last couple of years. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you can, like, what are some of the the challenges in your context for engaging faculty, especially faculty who don't tend to be involved? Um, as much obviously you know like in our institution people came out of the woodwork because they were desperate to know how do i do this online thing uh how do i use these tools even though like padlet has been around like since you know before dirt was invented but no one dealt with it because they felt they didn't need to um so we had just a lot more engagement but now we're returning and it's like it's going back down again i'm just curious for you like what were some of the challenges um, at Auburn for faculty um, and how did that impact you in the center? What are some of the things you saw happening during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) There were a lot of situational factors beyond the (laughs) pandemic so I was pregnant with my second child Uh, and I lost one of my parents during like it was just uh, Personally, it was kind of um, totally, kind of unreal sort of experience. And I think professionally, it was really difficult. Um, You know, having the faculty come out in droves to learn new things I thought was fantastic. And getting everybody onboarded with the very kind of baseline tech tools that facilitate learning and communication. um, I thought, you know, to have a reason to learn that stuff for faculty was such a great kind of outcome. Um, but the thing in terms of what, what I noticed or, you know, struggled with the most professionally is that, um, in the, the work that I do with faculty, a lot of it is designing programs, facilitating communities and things like that. Um, so for example, our course redesign program, mm-hmm. we redesigned it to go fully online in that summer, uh, for the course of two months. It's, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, And it was really valuable in some ways to have uh, the online asynchronous kind of tools and, and things like that. But what I value most about faculty development is the ability to create community. I think that that is probably the most important outcome of any kind of development work, programming, experiences, events. And that was really hard to recreate in an online environment where there's no margin for small talk, for kind of serendipitous contact and connection that you have when you have a face-to-face environment. And, um, you know, one of the, the areas of research that I'm most interested in, in terms of educational development perhaps not surprisingly given my background is um, the work of Roxanne Martinson on the backstage of Mm -hmm. faculty development, Um, you know, backstage conversations. They've done several articles on this um, and drawn from a lot of scholars, but essentially the way I understand their, their kind of central argument is that the most important change conversations happen when we're in small kind of intimate, conversation with people that we know and trust. Mm -hmm. So I may get an idea at some random orientation or workshop on a one-off kind of idea, but if I'm actually going to implement it, I'm going to need to kind of process that idea. Think about how it fits with my context in a smaller kind of setting with a more kind of intimate group of people. And more often what really happens in my experience is I hear that somebody else is trying something and that to me opens a door of possibility um, in a way that hearing a a workshop or reading a book or hearing a podcast, you know, those might seed an idea, but it doesn't seem possible to me until I see a peer or somebody else doing it with some success or enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for, for all of us. And I think that that's the piece that was missing from the online. I think that's what's missing when we have online classes. I think online classes are absolutely wonderful, but you can't get that kind of backstage Serendipitous mm. conversation connection, and I think for a lot of students, for a lot of faculty, that's the piece that is missing in terms of the past year for learning. And I think that that. Do you something think that, to think that
0: has to happen? You know, literally in person. Like for example, I'm teaching a class this semester that's asynchronous, um, but I decided to use WhatsApp for the like communication tool, um, and it. I mean, granted, it's a pretty small class and it's an elective that people have opted to take. Um, But I've been amazed at the amount of chat there using WhatsApp. Um, You know, people are sharing things and like what they're trying out. And there's a lot of positive feedback um, and like resource sharing that I'm surprised by. I don't know if it's because WhatsApp feels like you're talking to a friend, um, because you're texting them and it's not like you're formally going to the site of whatever platform and doing like heinous discussion board stuff. Or, I mean, do you, do you feel there is something, and I don't disagree. I'm just, just, you know, exploring that idea. Like, is there something about being embodied in person that has to happen or, is it just that it has to have some, it has to be a peer in a sort of a, a proximal, you know, like Bandura talks about this proximal, you know, there's this someone that's not too far away from me, but um, you know, that I'm just like, ah, forget it. They're in a different context or or they're much better at tech than me. Like, and you just forget it. It has to be like a proximal other. They're slightly ahead in some way. And it creates, Maybe a possibility in yourself. So, is it what? What about it? Is it is it that is it th- that it's someone sort of close to you in your work that um, will sort of motivate you more? Is it having smaller group conversations, as you said, as opposed to just being like an audience participant? Or is there also an aspect of being physically together? What do you think?
1: Those are such great questions. You know, I certainly don't have you know, the answer. Answer. In my experience, I feel like a back channel, like you're suggesting the WhatsApp has become something that doesn't look like class. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, the the experience doesn't feel like it's part of the controlled environment of the classroom. So you're more likely mm-hmm. to have a kind of autonomous motivation to engage. And I think that that, you know, the autonomy involved in deciding to have a conversation with somebody about a topic that enhances your education Mm -hmm. or your willingness to change up the way you look at things. I think that that's a really important piece of it, um, certainly. Um, Feeling like it's kind of private or in the backstage. You know, Mm -hmm. that metaphor is um, Mm -hmm. to suggest that the things that we kind of plan out, so our lesson plans as faculty, our program, agenda, schedule, et cetera, as faculty developers, what we are you know, focusing on, the workshop description, that's the front stage here are the activities we're going to do here's what i'm going to focus on and then the backstage is all the stuff that happens outside of, the kind of you know the spotlight of of the kind yeah. of predetermined and script, scripted um, things occurring on the front stage and so i think any place where you can create a backstage it could certainly be through some kind of online whatsapp type tool mm-hmm. or within you know other kinds of channels i think for a lot of folks We use the private chat in Zoom as a place to have a little bit of a back channel. Yeah, always feels kind of risky. I'm always very careful not to put things in there. Adds
0: to the thrill. (laughs) It's like, could someone, could my dean actually read this or not? And we're all, you know, you know that's not true because you run your own Zoom session and you can't see people's private chats when you download the chat file. But still, you wonder maybe. I know. Sometimes you just go to your phone because you double check your. Chatting to oh, the right person and, Oh, yes. Yeah. Who hasn't done that in the early stages? Um, it's interesting that this whole playwright and the metaphor of the backstage versus the scripted.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, in terms of what you're talking about, are you kind of talking about the backstage and the scripted in terms of what you do when you're planning professional development, but also how you how your faculty have to um, work have that backstage time together for their scripted piece? Um,
1: yeah, I you know one of the the recent well before the pandemic, yeah. um, I uh, was presenting at a, a conference with a panel. We were talking about you know the idea of the backstage and ways to bring the backstage into. The programs, the development, the conversations we're having with faculty, like how to be really intentional about creating an opportunity for those conversations to happen and flourish. Yeah. So in a most obvious way, you know, thinking about traditional lecture versus active learning, you know, that's one of the reasons that's such a powerful model um, for teaching and for development, because students have that time to process and talk to each other about the ideas that they're getting. So it's valuable as long as they are, you know, working on the, the kind of, in terms of a learning um, experience if they're focused on the content. But I think it's also valuable when they're not focusing on the content for creating more intimacy, more trust, more connection between the students or the faculty and the participants. So I think, you know, intentionally building in opportunities for that kind of sp- Space and time for those things to happen is really it's hard to do because you don't want to say you know 15 minutes now just have a chat with your neighbor because that feels like a waste of time and I think that is one of the big risky things with all of this zoom technology and the hyper efficiency we now have in terms of meeting up with each other is that we don't have that you know the margins of time between events where we're walking from one location where we're lingering outside a room you know it's hard to recreate that in an online environment. We could say I'm going to leave this Zoom window open so if anybody wants to stay and chat we can but you know who's going to who's going to stay?
0: Everybody everybody leaves <laughs> yeah. I have a
1: couple extroverts who hang around desperate for connection like myself <laughs> but you know in general that is not that's not organic, it's not authentic, and people aren't going to do that, so I think, you know, that's a limitation of, of the kind of Zoom connection
0: options we have now. I mean, the, that hyper-efficiency, I mean, I know I do it myself, it's like, what meeting can I turn off my camera, and like, fold my laundry while I'm, (laughs) while I'm here, Um, you know, like you, working moms, and, you know, trying to to sort of take advantage of the fact that I'm in my house, I feel I gotta be productive in both fronts. I gotta like clean off the kitchen counter if I'm just sort of listening <laughs> to a meeting or where can I do it as a phone call? Because then at least I can take a walk. Um, you know, so we're thinking in different ways, but you're right about them. Um, I love how you talked about the margins for serendipitous contact, um, really essential for the humanizing of all this. So, in terms of centers for teaching and learning, obviously you've talked about the importance of that sense of community and being able to really see what others are doing and talk about talk about those ideas. Um, where do you see um, now that maybe centers are even more recognized for their important work post pandemic, but we're still sort of in this transition phase. Um, where do you see Um, The work of educational developers going now to sort of ride this wave of G centers do a lot to help things (laughs) keep going around here. Um, Anything in particular that you kind of have a sense of, or maybe something that you're planning to work on um, at your institution
1: yeah um i mean kind of coming out of this idea about you know what's important in terms of our programming and it's not just that we have well-researched content that we deliver in effective and thoughtful ways but rather that the people who show up are really put you know their experience their ways of seeing ways of doing Are kind of prioritized in meaningful, authentic ways. So, not just asking for lots of people to share ideas, but rather giving them time to have conversations
0: Mm. at the
1: pace on the topics, you know, in the ways that are truly going to lead to them connecting with another human, considering their viewpoint and what's working for them, considering Mm. their own and sharing their own. Um, I think that that's a really important piece. And I would love to see, you know, in the future, more programming that really centers the stories of the individuals who are showing up, both, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of classroom education, but also faculty development. Um, I think that anytime you can get people to sh- I mean, you know, like this podcast, being able to share my story, yeah. you know, hopefully this is of interest and value for for folks who are listening. But for me, this is, you know, kind of a a a moment I'm going to be reflecting on for a long time about, oh why did I talk about this and not that, you know, kind of unpacking and helping me understand myself better as an educational developer. And I think, you know, doing, giving people this gift, like you're doing of just sitting and listening Mm. and asking questions that help us to go deeper and deeper into our experiences, as opposed to just, well, what are you doing? Okay, that's nice. What about you? You Turn around the conversation table. Um, I think all those things have value, but to really get to where we're open and I guess it kind of aligns with that Brene Brown vulnerability stuff where we're willing to be vulnerable with people. It takes a lot of time to develop that trust. So the more we can kind of fast track that by helping people share vulnerable experiences, stories and things like that, the better we are at really creating an experience where people can actually change. And Uh, I think that that's where I'm really interested in seeing, Paired, of course, with the sort of paradoxical idea that the assessment of our work is becoming more and more and more important. And I think, you know, in the future, well, I think it's happening now. I just saw a job call out on the the pod channel where Columbia University is hiring a faculty assessment person in their their teaching and learning center. So somebody helped to assess the work. And I think we're going to see more of that. Um, I think we would already see more, except the skills that assessment people have. As somebody uh, mentioned to me, you know, when I was talking about this um, with some other center directors the other day, you know, those skills are highly desirable. Um, and teaching learning centers can't always compensate people mm-hmm. at the rate it would take to get people with those skills to to stay. So maybe more postdocs and things like that, where yeah. assessment is part of their job description in addition to or maybe just in collaboration with the folks who are designing the programming Um, i think we'll see more of that
0: for sure i it was interesting when i looked at that job ad um i was curious because i live in new york and i I was wondering what this was and it has about i don't know 60 bullet points of things and then at the very end it's like a bachelor's desired (laughs) like okay I don't know who, what person with a bachelor's degree is gonna have all those skills, but um, unless it's a bachelor's they've gotten, you know, after working for many years, but it's quite a tall order to, as you said, um, understand enough about um, higher ed, teaching in higher ed, uh, the all the modalities and, and formats and discipline areas and styles of teaching in higher ed and be able to develop faculty in these areas with assessment, because, you know, assessment, again, it's like, what's the point of assessment if it's not to inform practice? And um, a lot of the kinds of assessment we see of faculty, whether it's like student-facing evaluations of teaching or peer observation or, you know, they're very weak forms of development. Um, So it's interesting though that, you know, administrations still love to assess things. And there's like, as you said, a paradox between, you know, still this accountability sort of drive that's been around, but maybe the pandemic shaking everything up, as you're saying, there's the, the pendulum is going back more towards like a humanizing um, kind of look at who faculty are as sort of complete beings and what really will motivate them to change practice and, and how do you get assessment information that um, they can really take in, use, Um, you know, it has to be, as you were mentioning before, it's really those really small moves, um, you know, to be able to recognize and see and reflect in yourself, those small decisions you're making, where they're coming from, your beliefs and your stances. Um, You know, I I was reading a little about your work with, um, you know, really large classes, like large lecture format classes Um, and I'm curious because that's always something that seems to never get enough attention, um, at centers. And how do you, maybe something you've done in the past or you're seeing now, or that you'd love to put into place for those instructors who oftentimes are in the sciences, um, who run, you know, maybe very large classes and sometimes feel left out from some of the, kinds of topics that come up in faculty development workshops. Um, You know, we've abandoned the clickers, but what, what is, what do you see there in terms of bringing about that sort of team community, you know, feeling connected, the sharing of ideas that obviously you value. um, And I'm sure many of the faculty running those large classes would like to have, but are still a bit unsure. And in a way, a large lecture format is almost a lot of parallels to teaching online because there is less of a chance of that peer-to-peer or the interaction between professor and student like any thoughts on the large Mm -hmm. classes
1: yeah absolutely so the large lectures that i've taught you know we have used the team-based learning model for exactly that reason to have students have this kind of smaller community within the larger group that they feel accountable to and for And recently I I partnered with some of our faculty here on um, an educational research study that had one of our biology professors who taught two sections of a large lecture. She wanted to try active learning. um, And so she had one class taught in the traditional lecture format, the other class taught in the active learning, team-based learning format. Okay. And to assess the impact, she partnered with an educational researcher, Karen McNeil in our geoscience department where um, a group of students over the course of five different evaluations over a semester would wear these bio skin sensors, kind of like a Fitbit, but a lot more expensive and tied to a a database collection kind of um, tool. And so I participated doing um, COPUS observations to record the teaching and learning practices that were happening in, in both of the different classes. So we did this over the course of a semester and um, you could see with the biosensor data that anytime the students were engaged in team-based learning, their um, kind of arousal metrics went up, perspiration, heart rate, things like that. We also collected information on how they actually scored on you know, a test of knowledge based on the content they were learning that day. They okay. filled out a survey, how engaged were you, You know, that kind of thing. Um, so we recently published that study in CBE Life Sciences, and the, the one of the main goals was to kind of validate skin sensors as a as an actual tool to assess student engagement. Um, but we saw, you know, in terms of the results of the finding that in that group that had the team based learning, those students started out at kind of a lower level. We did the pretest assessment mm-hmm. of you know what students were coming in with to see what okay. kinds of populations we had. Um, and the students in that active team-based learning class closed the gap with the other students over the course of the semester. So it was, you know, pretty powerful um, example of using this method as an effective strategy in a large lecture uh, STEM class.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, it was cool to be a part of all the ideas were not mine. I was just doing a copus, but it was really (laughs) cool to see how the ideas are
0: them. yours lindsay because they're about <laughs> the team-based learning what um so if the groups had been um pretty much equivalent at baseline then you would have seen more uh, an, we would expect uh, an to increase, see yeah. yeah really really cool you know what's interesting about that the perspiration or like the heart rate and stuff is you know i'm in language education and Um, there's this idea of the the monitor hypothesis, which is that, you know, as you're trying to speak in a foreign language, um, if you become overly anxious, um, you know, you you can't produce because you have this sort of monitor, like, did I say that in the right tense? Am I saying this right? And then you wind up not really producing much. So teacher's role is sort of to lower that affective filter so that students are more willing to take risks. But what I have found actually is that you have to have a certain level of anxiety. And, and so I, I kind of sometimes will tell my teachers like, cause I work, you know, teacher education to to not overly relax everyone because you have to have a certain being on edge to sort of bring attention. It, it makes you sharper and you're more in focus cause you're like, oh, they're about to call on me. What's gonna happen? Um, but not to the level, of course, of like shutting down or becoming very, very anxious. Um, but it's interesting that the heart rate um, and the per- last night I did a class that was a Zoom session synchronous. And um, the first part I was like, I got to get this information across to students. And then they were applying it with like a case in, in their breakout rooms in the second part. And you can literally see like, they're just you know, sagging as you're speaking, but then it's like they're in their groups, you know? And I said, you can turn off your cameras for this first part because like, I don't want to see you sagging. Um, but when you're in your breakout rooms, you have to have your camera on and like be interactive. So it's, it is amazing, you know, that just putting the um the students in some kind of role where you're expecting interaction from them just alerts the senses
1: <laughs> absolutely one of the really interesting things we found we had um the the professor Min wear the skin sensor as well
0: mm. and we
1: saw an inverse relationship when her engagement was at its highest students were you know falling off the cliff in terms of engagement she was doing i mean i think it's really that that finding kind of opens the door for using skin sensors i think in interesting ways on faculty if we could validate that like when you're at a certain level you can predict your students are at this lower level as a way to help train yourself To take your foot off the gas and let your students do some learning, some talking. I always do, you know, we do a lot of active learning development. So I'll always ask faculty, like, what's the opposite of active learning? And, you know, after a few moments, they'll say, "Uh, passive learning. Like, no, (sighs) the opposite of active learning, there's no such thing as passive learning. Like, either you're learning or you're not. The opposite is active teaching. And if you're the one doing all of the talking, making all Mm -hmm. of the connections, doing all of the metaphor creation, thinking and explaining, you are the one doing all of the learning. And I think just getting students, wow giving faculty, same thing for faculty development. If I'm the one doing all of the talking, which is what I learned in a very, you know, over the course of a year or two, I finally learned this is not the Lindsay show. It's not about me. It's not a presentation. It's an interaction. You've got to give folks the opportunity to connect things and solve their own problems. And I think that's one of the, the reasons where in the future, you know, educational development centers are gonna have a lot of resources, you know, share evidence-based practices and things like that. But I think the best events and the best centers and the best you know, faculty mm-hmm. experiences are gonna be areas where faculty have opportunities to share in really meaningful ways um, their approach to solving problems in their classroom, their story of how they got to where they're at, you know, hopes and dreams and that kind of touchy feely stuff. I think that those are the conversations that really have meaning and value. And I think that that's when we do have these moments where we can gather together with humans in a room. That's what we should be trying to focus our time on allowing them to bring the best of themselves out of themselves and also out of each other. Um, so, trying to design ways to make that happen, I feel like is is what the challenge is for developers.
0: Well, Lindsay, I feel you you really embody that. I mean, that is um, that's brilliant. I mean, I'm just even I'm just reflecting now on my class last night, and as I see uh, and I'm aware that I'm the one like doing the energy, and they're kind of in a receptive mode. Um, I kind of hate it as it's happening because I see that they're sort of like blah, blah, blah. And you, you know, that's where those stop and interact, you know, the mentimeters. it sort of keeps people a little bit like, oh, okay, there's something to do here. Um, And I need to perforate like those, my segments that way. Um, But the energy um, then shifts to them, right? And then I'm like, just sitting here while they're in the breakout rooms, getting my relax. And it's, and then I worry also, like, is it too much that they're like, why are we over here? Why isn't she telling us about this stuff? You know, um, And so we're always kind of questioning, um, but I love the idea of those sensors as really a tangible example of like the, those energy dynamics that I think great instructors are very aware of. Um, And that you can't always have all the energy being driven by the students because they're like, why did I pay for this class, you know, Um, but it can't be all just you because then they become, yeah, really kind of disconnected Um, and how educational developers model that, you know, in their sessions. And even if it's something where, yes, attendees are kind of in a listening mode, but it's several faculty sharing something that day. You know, you're creating these spaces where faculty get to tell their stories. And maybe at that time, the energy is more on those like four faculty who are sharing rather than, you know, the the participants. But um, really interesting. My phone is ringing, but we're all ignoring that. Um, I won't scream at my husband now who's upstairs. (laughs) So um, anything else though, Lindsay, like that maybe didn't come up um, that you just want to talk about in terms of you're you know you're thinking about what the work is as an educational developer um, for people who are listening from other centers for teaching and learning
1: yeah i think you know the next kind of point to be made after after this conversation um with you know faculty should be we should use our face-to-face events to bring faculty together to have conversations about you know whatever Uh, The next question is, well, great, but how do you assess that work? How do you justify someone's salary to the provost or whoever, you know? So I think how we assess the impact of faculty development in particular um, is going to become more nuanced. That was something um, in my pod rights group. I participated in the pod rights workshop at our last face-to-face pod in Pittsburgh, which was great. I got to work with this really diverse team of eight different educational developers from very different institutions, regions of the country. And our question was to kind of tackle the Randy Bass um, prompt of what is, um, what does it mean to take teaching and learning seriously at this moment in higher education? And at that moment, there was no pandemic as we were working on it, you know, that, that moment that moment part became a lot more <laughs> right,
0: <Momentous. laughs> a lot more interesting and
1: critical to our, our conversation. Um, but one of the things that that came out of our conversation, which was um, a really valuable, challenging, interesting process to work with that many different people uh, who had such different approaches. I think we've you know we've we've submitted our article and it's been accepted. So I don't know when it's going to come out but sometime in the future. I'm very excited. That's
0: great. That's great.
1: Um, One of the questions that my team was tasked with is how do we assess the work of educational development, um, you know, that seeks to form strategic partnerships with students with other units across the university, we took a lot from that um, new learning compact that Randy Bass and a bunch of other, you know, super famous established folks in the pod network collaborated on, on putting together. And our, our approach was kind of looking at how do you actually assess that kind of invisible work that we're doing. And so we had a section on the kind of secondary impacts of faculty developers as an area for assessment. So how many relationships are you creating? Mm-hmm. How many you know, opportunities come about because of the deep network and ties you've created at your institution with the idea that you know, as you advance in this work, you become more and more valuable to the organization that you're sort of embedded in because you have that deeper network of connections and relationships. So starting to assess that, those kind of secondary impacts, um, the conversations that happen as a result of the workshop you did on X, Y, Z topic. Uh, how we do that assessment, it's every yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it's it, it, it's a really interesting conversation, but I think if we're really going to continue to add value to institutions, that's got to be something that we're thinking about. Not just who showed up, who implemented exactly what I suggested, how did that impact student learning, and what X Y Z impact do we see on students? You know, learning is yeah. so much more complex and complicated that um, that just doesn't do it. So seeing more of these partnerships or hybrid roles of faculty developers and assessment professionals, I think is something that we'll see in the future uh, because it is really complex, but really, really important.
0: Absolutely. One of those
1: wicked problems.
0: (laughs) Yes, a wicked problem. Um, And it's interesting to see, you know, at the end of it, it's, it's always about personnel. It's never about the technology, the tools, the methods it's it, because you can try to create those relationships across sectors in your, in your institution. But if, if, if if teaching learning is not really valued there by the leadership, it's really tough going. Um, And how do you how do you, it may not be a relationship that can be measured um, with even anyone in those like uh, official roles or assessment role, but it could be, as you said, um, faculty who are starting to have more of these kinds of conversations and trying things in new ways. Um, and, and then you can start to look, sometimes you have to start from the bottom, You know, really look like you said, looking really more from the student learning, the faculty the instructors and then maybe it goes that way in some institutions it comes the other way because there's you know a strong vision for teaching and learning and our set our you know our settings are so vastly different um and you know student learning if it's you know completion you know and graduation for a lot of places that's all we're trying to get to <laughs> is or or in some places it's just get students you know um, and how the the opportunities that students have now to go to places where they can do things high flex or all online or you know it creates um, a compa- a competitive movement too I think where especially smaller places um, smaller institutions not so much university at your scale or where I am at CUNY, which kind of will have students sort of automatically, but other kinds of smaller places are challenged by um, pl- other kinds of institutions where teaching and learning is everything and students are really made to feel um, supported. And students will often find the money for that um, because they know they need that kind of support. Or So it's really, It is is really a wicked problem because there are so many variables to it. It can never be something that's solved per se, as you said, because it really is very particular to the context um, and the people that are there. Um, And Auburn is very lucky to have you people there, Lindsay. So I want to thank you very much for your time today. It was, it was great to, to, to speak with you and we're all going to get Fitbits that measure um, <laughs> our but we won't wear them in like department meetings uh, because yeah. our we don't want to know what our blood pressure is doing.
1: <laughs> well, in most department meetings, whoever's leading it, you know,
0: they're probably big,
1: big spike in engagement. Everybody else. Spike.
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting. Our spike is in, our spikes are going up, but we're it's more of like our reactions to what we're hearing. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe learning. Interesting. Um, well, thanks so much, Lindsay, and we look forward to um, continuing to see um, your work, especially the, um, the article that you're talking about that's coming out. Um, we will link to that in the show notes. So thank you awesome. so much.
1: Thank you.